Welcome back to another episode of Jonah and Ben Play Board Games with Friends. I am Jonah, joined as always by my co-host Ben. Hello, hello. And today we are joined by our good friend Paul. Welcome to the show, Paul. Hey, thanks for having me. So what have you two been up to lately? Well, uh, I actually had a board game day at my house recently, a small one, a couple people to play some heavier games, and I invited Ben over because one of the people I was previously trying to get to come was really hard to schedule. I was like, wait, Ben's back in New Jersey. I haven't played games with Ben in a long, long, long time. It's nice to get game days together again, isn't it? Oh, God, yes. It's so nice. Yeah. No more board game arena and tabletop simulator? Uh-huh. Or at least a well, lot I mean, less of it. Yeah, less of it, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you get, I mean, you get forced into it depending on where people are. Like, I've gotten used to... Not that, I've, not that I've played many games online in a little while, but, like, you get used to playing with some people. So, like, if I want to play with Nick again or something like that, I need to play online. Mm-hmm. I can't just fly out to the West Coast. Right, yeah. And play I'm a board game. play something later today with him online. We'll see. Did you see that um, to tease later in the show, Lost Ruins of Arnak is on Board Game Arena? Uh, I didn't, I, but I, that's I, good I, to I know. I saw that as I was poking around, yeah, actually. That's on there. Iwari is on there, which looked pretty cool. Oh, I've wanted to try Ooh. Iwari. Yeah, so it's on there know. in beta. So, yeah. Cool. I actually forgot that I subscribed to Board Game Arena. Uh, that so, expensive $2 a month. Easy to forget yeah, about, right? It's killing me. So, Ben, how'd you get to Florida? You're in Florida now, right? Yes, I flew. I flew to Florida. Oh, the fast yeah. way. Yeah. Well, uh, I was trying to come down here at some point because I wanted to come down here. So funny, funny, uh, funny story. The, the only reason, well, not the only reason, but half the reason I'm down here is because I wanted to go to, um, Universal Studios. So I have a pass for Universal Studios and half the reason I wanted to come down here was because, uh, technically on what day is it? The sixth, technically on the 10th, Universal is opening the Jurassic Park Velocicoaster, um, which is a very cool roller coaster, and I love roller coasters. Um, so I was like, oh, I've got to get down here to ride it. Um, the lines are going to be nuts. And then I noticed for the last couple weeks, they've actually been like soft opening it anyway, so it's been open regardless. Um, and my thought is because it is just like the Hagrid's motorbike roller coaster that they have, uh, a multi-launch roller coaster, and they had a ton of problems with Hagrid's, so... I think they've been testing it a lot. Um, so fingers crossed it's still open because I'm going tomorrow into Tuesday. Uh, but my worry is that they're going to close it for like the week leading up to the grand opening and then have like a grand opening. So hopefully it's not closed. But it hasn't been closed this weekend. So half the reason I came down here was to go on a roller coaster. So, yeah. What is a multi-launch roller coaster? Uh, so the initial launch... And then there's launches throughout the ride as well that give you more speed as you go. So instead of just the initial like launch up up a hill and then you continue, there's a launch and then later in the ride there's another launch, and later in the ride there's another launch. Gotcha. Okay, so I guess that was like self-explanatory. The, um... Yeah, like Hagrid's has like five. I think this one has three. So, yeah. Yep. 
Paul, are you a big roller coaster? -er? Yeah, I, I do actually. Um, my wife got us a uh, season passes to Six Flags, so we've been going quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> slowly working on Miles, getting him on more and more roller coasters. But right now, he just does the the Harley Quinn coaster, which is a very small, like uh, you know, close to the ground, no loops, no nothing like that. But I'll be riding out. with Miles then. That's my kind of <laughs> roller coaster experience. Well, oh, yeah. they're they're opening. Uh, the Jersey Devil Coaster is having a media day on the 10th and apparently opening mm -hmm. on the 12th, which is when I'm coming back to New Jersey. So I might be going that weekend to nice. try and try and get on that. So we'll see. No coincidences there, right? Nope. I actually didn't know it was going to open anytime soon, but apparently it is. So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I think it was supposed to open actually like late last year, but then it got delayed. Yep. Like everything did. <laughs> Right. So, so yeah, All that's right. why that's why I came down. That's why I came down that's to Florida. Exciting. Also to see my family because they matter too. I guess. It's very kind of you. Jessica and I are up in Canada now, seeing her family, but not really, because even though we have both been fully vaccinated, we must do a fourteen day quarantine where we cannot leave the property. We cannot see anyone else. We can't see her parents who are upstairs. So we're just in the basement and they bring food to the stairway and then they walk away and then we go and do that. Um, but the good news about that is I brought up the PlayStation and I have been playing a lot of video games. Hey. So uh, I am currently, I think, 28 hours into Returnal. Oh which God. is great. Ooh. Really enjoying that. <laughs> and uh, I will not be sharing any board game stories, unfortunately. But I have the PlayStation down here, and I brought up the disc golf basket and some discs. So I've just been playing video games all day, and then when I need some fresh air, I'll go outside and throw a few discs into a basket and uh, rinse and repeat. I have a telehealth COVID test today. Which will be my third test in nine days. The previous two were negative. Wow. I haven't seen anyone. I wonder what's going to happen today. <laughs> well, you're seeing us right now. That's right. Hopefully this is allowed. I'm not allowed to have any visitors <laughs> yeah. here. Oh, boy. Well, I took my dad out for a round of disc golf Friday. I wouldn't say I took him out for a round. He was my caddy. Um he, the caddy daddy. So, well, so he—that's gross. Um, He's—he's <laughs> he's never, um, he's never actually like watched me play or anything. Like he's—I have practice baskets. I have one in Florida and I have one in New Jersey. So he's like made putts on practice baskets and stuff. Like he's seen me practice putting, but he's never like actually seen me, you know, go out and play. Throw up more than twenty um, feet. Yeah. So. Um, it was kind of cool to bring him out and he said he would go again. So, I mean, it's an, it's an easy course to walk the one that we go to. Um, it is pay to play. So I have to tell them that he's just walking the course with me. Um, but yeah, he wore my back, he wore my backpack uh, with my discs in it, which was insane. And I was like, well, he would walk up on the tee box and say like, Oh, the basket's there. It looks like you want to throw through this gap here. He's like being a real caddy. He was really enjoying it. So it was fun. 
That sounds really helpful. I'm sure he only gave you good advice and you played better for it, right? Yeah. Uh, except for the first, except for, so this course has one T pad that's shared by holes four and hole six. Um, so like the T pad, you go one direction for six and the other direction for four. Um, and he gets up on that T pad and weird. points to hole six when I'm going to hole four. So after that, I didn't really take his lines into consideration. <laughs> but uh, to be fair, if you if it's your first time at the course, you wouldn't realize that that was the case. But yeah, it is a little weird, and I'm surprised they don't just like put another tee pad next to it. Considering it's pay to play, they it that's the thing. When it's pay to play, they're reinvesting that money back into the course like pretty quickly. Like I've been there, gone the next day, and things that were wood were concrete overnight. Like they replaced them with concrete or they replaced the baskets overnight. So I'm surprised that they actually have a shared tee pad. It's a little weird, but how much do you have to Big pay questions. to play? Uh, it's, it's seven bucks around, but you get all, well, not around it's seven bucks for a day. So you can go back, back as many times as you want throughout the day. Big question is, did it affect your game at all uh, with your dad there watching you? Uh, not really, actually. I shot my personal best on the course. Um, so I, my personal best on this course was four over. I can easily, I honestly, I really do think that I could easily play under par on this course, but the first three holes for some reason always give me trouble. Like the first hole is like a 300 foot par three that plays for like a forehand line. And it takes a while for my forehand to like warm up. So it's really difficult for me to like score that one well. And then hole three is like a 10 foot wide, just like forest tunnel. So if you're offline at all, it just like bounces out into the middle of like nowhere. So uh, I was plus one personal best, but I bogey, bogey, double bogey on the first three. So that's a rough way to start Mm -hmm. around. I was looking at some courses in the area for when I'm allowed to leave the property and throw a disc more than 30 feet. Uh, And we're going to be visiting some friends in Ottawa post 14 day quarantine, of course. And I was looking at courses around there as well. And the only courses I found that look nice enough to play at are pay to play. The one in Ottawa is $5, which is whatever. There's another course near Ottawa. That's just like three baskets in a park with no tee pads or anything. So it's just make your own course with three random baskets. Hmm. And I'm just like, I don't want to take my friends disc golfing their first time and just throw it random baskets in a park. (laughs) So yeah, that's a little weird. That that is a little odd. Yeah. And it's Canadian dollars as well. So it's not as much. Yeah, that's true. I know every, uh, not to continue on the disc golf thing forever, because we are a board game (laughs) podcast, but I know every single course, at least what I've heard, every single course in Maine is pay to play, but Maine apparently has a lot of really, really nice disc golf courses because of it. Hmm. But uh, yeah, apparently every course up there is pay to play. Maine's too far away, so it's okay that they're pay to play. (laughs) But anyway, like you were saying, uh, board games. Yes. Paul. Yeah. Since it's your first time on the show, and I forget to ask everyone this every time, um, why don't you tell us what game or games got you into the hobby, and what game or games you like to play these days? What type of games? All right. Well, uh, so I was thinking about this, and I actually played a lot of games growing up, but like you know, outside of 
we used to play like you know Scrabble or Sorry or you know Life. Boggle. The 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 yes Boggle. <laughs> um, the games that actually got me into more like hobby board gaming were uh, my aunt had a game called The Amazing Labyrinth that I played. Mm. It's a it's a interesting game where you get a, a hand of cards with symbols on it that match symbols on the map, but you have a tile like every, there's one extra tile, and basically you push. You push the tile into a, a, a slot on the board that changes what the board looks like. So it's kind of a maze. Oh, so cool. each turn you basically you push the, the card in uh, and then try to move your guy to get to one of your symbols that you need to get to. And the first one to have collected all their symbols wins that game. So that's a that was that was the first like kind of game I played where I was like, oh, this isn't just like rolling dice or you know moving around a map to, you know there's more to it uh and then i found a game that my dad had stored away in our attic one time it was jumanji called... was it beating <laughs> no it wasn't beating <laughs> it was a game called thinking man's golf which uh apparently i'm what is that supposed to, to say about act... regular golf it's actually on board game geek <laughs> which wow is crazy it was produced in 1966 um and essentially it's a it's a map of a golf course um and you have a polyurethane pencil and a little like acrylic grid board and you essentially place the grid board down where you want to make your shot you roll a couple dice and then you consult charts to determine uh what happens to your ball oh man (laughs) and so yeah it was it was a game that I played solo. I'm, I'm looking at this now. This is wild. <laughs> Apparently, there's Thinking Man's basketball and football as well. That's insane. But yeah, so I've played that for several hours just by myself because <laughs> everyone's <laughs> like, "Why do you want to play that boring ass game?" But yeah, uh, it was. It's you're a it, thinking man. Yeah, it was. It was fun, and I enjoyed it, and I. Pretty much, those are the the games I think that got me into more complicated uh, hobby board gaming. And That's a solid nowadays... 6.0 rating on Board Game Geek for <laughs> <Yeah>. that game. <laughs> I wonder why people didn't want to play it with you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so that that yeah that one's out of left field, I think. Um, but yeah, nowadays, uh, honestly, I'll, I'll play just about anything. Uh, I guess I, I tend towards a bit meatier uh, long-form games. Maybe not necessarily uh, all at once, but you know I play a lot of campaign games uh, right now. And, but yeah, I'll play pretty much anything. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. What campaigns are you in the middle of right now? Or have you recently so, finished? Uh, so, well, recently finished... Oh, jeez. So... <laughs> Uh, I showed my my son a game called Arcadia Quest, which is uh, basically a dice chucker dungeon crawler. Um, that is, it's one of my favorite games. But uh, it's it's essentially you go into you have some objectives. You you know go through the dungeon, kill monsters, just throw dice at whatever problems you run into. Um, but it's a six game campaign. Uh, for the for the game, I have three separate campaigns, and we went through all three of them because he enjoyed it so much. Wow! 
and uh, just really quick, uh, Arcadia Quest, if you remember when Nadia was on, uh, Nadia and Paul are married. Uh, Nadia Whoa. mentioned how uh, <laughs> how long I extended the game of Arcadia Quest. Uh, so it's funny that this comes up with you as well, <laughs> though you didn't mention me on that one. So thank you. But uh, yes, Arcadia Quest uh, was the game that somehow I guess is supposed to be like an hour and ended up at like two plus hours when I was playing. So that was fun. Yeah, I don't think that was your fault. I think it was the the setup of that particular uh, adventure that we have never done again. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm afraid it will actually happen again. Well, I have a story to tell. (laughs) But besides that, which was... I mean, a lot of fun, but man, I don't want to play Arcadia Quest for a while now. <laughs> um, I'm also in the middle of a uh, Gloomhaven campaign. Normal or uh, Jaws? Uh, normal. And I'm also in the middle of a King's Dilemma campaign. Oh, how's that going? I've heard good things. Uh, it's it's interesting. It it's it's yeah, it's it's a fun game. I can't don't want to say too much because there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in it. But essentially, you're just acting as a council, making decisions for the king um, for mostly your own gain. But uh, yeah, it's I will say it certainly makes you rethink your moral compass while you're playing this game. Oh, geez. Have you played many other legacy games like Pandemic Legacy or Clank Legacy? Uh, I haven't played Clank Legacy. I was I've I've been interested to find someone that has that. who has yet to have played it i want to play um, it so i have it and i have yet to have played it but you well, know really helpful jonah yeah <laughs> let's take a trip to canada um well it's in storage in east brunswick so uh let's break let's break in <laughs> <laughs> but yes i have played uh, pandemic legacy uh season one um that was fun i enjoyed that no uh, two or zero no two or zero, because after playing that many games of Pandemic, I have not had a desire to play Pandemic ever again. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, you know, it doesn't, it's not necessarily samey, but it's, it's a lot of stress <laughs> playing Pandemic. Definitely. I, th- I really liked, I've played all three and I liked two the best of the three. Mm-hmm. Uh, and two is actually very different from one and very different from normal pandemic, which is why it gets all the hate that it does. Also, I think because a lot of people who play it didn't read the cards while they played and uh, something bad happened. Anyway, it's very different than pandemic. It's more of a pick up and deliver than a go around and treat. So I would take a look at it if I were you. All right. And just to touch on the complaints that everyone has really quickly, the game can be very hard if you don't read the cards. There's a card that says, you know, something good might happen if you go here, basically. And then people complain about how hard it is. And it's like, well, if you went where the card told you to go, it would make things easier. Anyway. Also, if you're you're thinking about it, just remember, remember that sweet rhyme. The game wouldn't be as hard if you just read the card. <laughs> wow. We're saving that one. Yep. Let's do it. I'll make a sound bite out of it. 
but yeah, uh, so I guess now that we know what types of games you like to play and uh, what campaign games you've been playing, uh, since you haven't been on the show, what is, I guess, uh, we, you and I played games together very recently, but had you played anything, uh, like noteworthy that was like really, really good before you and I had met back up Ooh. like more recently, I guess, than when we last played games together between, new game. between when you and I last played games and the what most recent the time years. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> Oh, I don't know. I honestly haven't been playing... Up until recently, I haven't been playing a whole yeah, lot of games. That's fair. Have you heard uh, of Terra Mystica? It's a pretty new yes. game that you might like. Yeah, I I, I have, and we did. And, uh, <laughs> we, we used the uh, expansion when we played, actually, which was is fun. Which Tricks will come up in my thoughts mm-hmm. when we discuss. Yeah, it, um, it fixes a lot of the problems, I think, that base Terra Mystica has. Excellent. Well, then why don't you two tell everyone what you've played lately, sure. since I've played video games. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, really quickly, uh, Paul texts me and says, I'm trying to have a board game day where we play heavy, thinky games. And immediately I reply, ooh, I know what I want to bring. <laughs> and he's like, oh, really? I'm like, yes, I'm going to bring Kanban. So once again, uh, I played Kanban. But I brought Kanban... The Gallerist, and Rococo Deluxe, uh, just in case we wanted something not as heavy. I could have guessed those three games (laughs) with no problem at all. Well, you would have guessed right. So uh, we played Kanban. (laughs) That was one of the games. Uh, Now, the last time I was discussing this on the podcast, I do believe that I said, I think I could teach this game in 10 to 15 minutes now that I've played it. And uh, it was recorded. The timing was recorded. Uh, So I think it was told to me that by the time I was done with my explanation, like my major explanation, it was 22 minutes. So I wasn't 10 to 15, but I also was not the, the 45 minutes that Paul Grogan was on gaming rules. So I'm going to say I'm okay with that because I'm not the best game teacher as is. Just a very quick coincidental aside. I was looking at Board Game Geek this morning or yesterday, and I forget what game I was looking at, but someone said that it can be taught in 22 minutes or less. Is 22 minutes some like gold standard of board game teaching that I don't know about? Not that I know of. Because you've, you've done it. I, well, then it's true, because 22 minutes or less... Uh, I guess I was at that that time frame, but uh, the game itself, I I so I started the board game stats timer when I started teaching, and we ended at three hours and fifty seven minutes for the four player game, including the teach, with, including the teach with three brand new players. Um, so you know, but I did get told at the end of the game by one of the players that it didn't feel like we were playing for that long, which is, you know, what you always want to hear when you're playing a heavy game. But I just Only think it's funny like that... 3.55. <laughs> but I just think it's funny that Paul's like, bring a heavy, thinky game, and I'm like, bam, I got it. Like, I knew right off the bat which one I wanted to bring. Um, Paul, had but... you played yeah. Kanban before, or any other Lacerda games before? No, actually, that, that was my first introduction to a Lacerda game. 
It was What'd fun. You think? I enjoyed it. It, uh, I, the rules, it, it was very, you know, front heavy with the rules. Uh, yes. but everything went pretty smoothly. I, uh, the only thing that I messed up that kind of threw off my strategy a little was, I guess I missed the part where you have to, uh, discard a design when you get a car. So yeah, I had to, I had to go back and, you know, get the, uh, get more designs later on. So, but yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, what were the final were... scores? Were they close? Uh, I will pull it up. The final. Yeah. So the, what's funny is the final scores were close at the top end and close at the bottom end, but there was a large gap in between. Um, can which, you guess? Where, can you guess where you I was? On, ben? Can you guess? Please. I would guess. guess the top if you taught it, <laughs> but I would also guess the bottom because I know who you are. Uh, I came in third. Um, oh yikes! So uh, let's see. It was. Uh, 154 so uh one of paul's friends won 154 with 154 uh paul was at 151 <laughs> wow uh i was at 119 and then the final player was at 102 so there was quite a gap in the in the middle there uh and i can tell you exactly why that gap was there uh <laughs> because the last two turns so yeah jonah when you and i played the two player rule is you cannot go to the location that Sandra is currently on. Right. Um, in a four-player game, that doesn't that rule doesn't exist. But when you think about it, the way the core mechanic of the game works with your worker placement is you play the person who's the top, like you go top down for replacing your worker. Right. So if you are in administration, which is the lowest uh department on the board like vertically not the worst because it lets you work anywhere um if you're not in one of those two spots and those two spots are full you're not getting those two spots for at least two turns and i needed to go there because i needed to train there so that i would have been up on all the tracks and that would have given me like multiple things but for the last two turns I was too high up on the on the board to go down there and Paul and Paul's friend clogged it up and I was so mad <laughs> when I realized I wasn't going to be able to go there. So for the last two turns of the game I wasn't able to go to admin which would have let me uh score some points. Um but yeah, it was it was neat at 4. Um it was definitely different than at 2. Uh but I really I really enjoyed it at 4. It was a bit long, but I enjoyed it. The blocking for multiple turns, and I don't say this because it's a Lacerda game, because I can think of other games where this happens, sounds unfun to me. To want to go somewhere and to be blocked out for more than one turn seems like not the greatest uh, design feature, I guess. So like when we first played Electropolis, I remember we played it wrong. We thought that the top went left to right and the middle went left to right for, you know, placing and then picking up tiles. And it seemed kind of broken that you could go first and then pick first and then pick when to go again. And it was just this endless cycle of blocking other people throughout the game. And then we realized later on that that was wrong and the top part went right to left 
and the bottom part went left to right. I mean, there was also a one with an arrow to the left and a two with an arrow to the right, so we should have known that. Yeah. But uh, it was a good feeling, I think, in that game when we realized that what we thought didn't make sense, in fact, did not make sense. It was incorrect, and it didn't work that way. So it's weird to me that a game would have it so you can be blocked out of certain things for multiple turns. I think what I find the most interesting about that specifically, and I do kind of agree it was a a little frustrating to me at the end to not be able to get there. And, you know, the more spaces are fully clogged up because there's only two per department, the quicker Sandra jumps to like the end of the track. Right. So it, it, it is a little rough, but it's a little interesting that only come that literally only comes up in four player games. Like it won't, it wouldn't be the case in like, unless both people were an admin in three players, you know, you're always going to have like an open slot. It's going to be more spread out. So that rule I feel like would come up more in four player games than it would in any other player count, which I think is interesting. Like that there's something that can come up. I mean, I guess that's the point of, you know, scaling, but it was a little interesting. Just one thing before you chime in, Paul. It I don't want to say it's a design flaw because that's really not what I mean. I just want to say that's like an ethos that I can't get behind too much in games. You know, there, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but for me, yep. that just doesn't seem right. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, at least as far as Kanban is concerned, I think that's unfortunately just a, a product of the top to bottom deployment and admin being on the bottom that means if someone goes there early they're there for the turn but then they're last out again so like i don't think that happens with any of the other uh uh, other spots as much yeah so right and i'm sure they planned the order top down yeah Mm -hmm. i mean that's probably why admin is so powerful of being able to do anything it's also the hardest to get to if it gets filled up yep that's true all right what else did you guys play well, we also played, as I mentioned before, we played uh, Terra Mystica. Uh, we used the expansion, uh, the Fire and Ice expansion, which, in addition to adding two new, well, actually, sorry, six new possible races, uh, which two were featured, which was fun. Um, it also fixes some things about uh, turn order. And um, so, like, instead of the turn order being basically going clockwise from whoever passes first there's a there's a a track of you know whenever you pass you move over then you're first on the next next turn then the next person if they pass they become second and third and so on so it's not you don't get a benefit based on the fact that the person to your right uh you know passed before everyone else and you don't get punished for the opposite happening right exactly yes that's a really bad feeling in games with passing Mm mm-hmm uh, I, I was uh, I was gonna say really quick. I I found it interesting because I know Gaia Project is like the spiritual successor, I guess, set in another you know setting uh, to Terra Mystica. I found it interesting having played Gaia Project first. How many like inbuilt improvements they had in Gaia Project that like were fixed by an expansion in Terra Mystica, like. In Gaia Project, mm-hmm. you have that, you know, you pass your first 
next turn thing. And that seems so obvious. Fair. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like also seems so obvious. But then when you were like, oh, this is like from the expansion that you do this. I was in Terra Mystic. I was like, wow, that like you can see where they've like revamped things moving into Gaia Project, which was kind of neat. Yeah, and uh, the other thing we did, which I was actually surprised isn't actually a, a rule, it's a, uh, I guess, a house rule that um, some folks use for determining start player. Since Terra Mystic is a game of absolutely zero luck, I find it weird that the only place they have luck is randomizing who goes first. So instead, what we did was, in since you start with 20 victory points, uh, at the beginning of the game, we just bid for basically start position. So whoever bid the most got to go first, etc. I think in tournament play, because there are Terra Mystica tournaments, and not just for Terra Mystica, but bidding with points is very common, and that is what is done in a lot of games for faction choosing and for turn order choosing. So like in Twilight Struggle, which is a two-player game, people bid points for which of the two factions they want to play as. And it's just, you know, I, you know, I'll put five points in your bowl if I get to play Russia, basically. And, you know, it's, it's a really interesting system because you can kind of sort out the uh, power levels yourself. And it's, uh, in the Great Zimbabwe, just for instance, you know, the different gods adjust your victory requirement differently. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that is built into the game saying this is more powerful, so you need more points to achieve it. So that's, you know, done front loaded in all these other games like this in the tournament scene, which I think is really nice. Yeah, that um, that bidding for factions is actually also mentioned in the, the Terra Mystica expansion. Oh really? Uh, the only yeah, the only reason we didn't use it was because there are three new players, and I didn't feel like explaining right. twenty something different races. Uh, so we just basically picked uh, picked tokens out of a hat, and then that gave everyone a choice of four to choose from. Uh, which I think in some cases went well, in some cases not so well. <laughs> For instance, one of my friends uh, they picked. Uh, they got the red token, and they saw, ooh, I'm going to be these guys. They, they sound awesome. They're chaos mages. And I went, oh, man. They're very hard to play. You probably don't want to use them the first time. To which her reply was, but they're chaos mages. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think yeah, that was... they're, well, you know better than me. You've played Terra Mystica more than me. I've only played it like uh, five or ten times. <laughs> um, but I know that they are regarded as a very strong faction but they're one of those classic asymmetrical board game factions that is really good if you know what you're doing yes horrible if you do not absolutely that that was exactly correct (laughs) i was the engineers Um, oh the gnomes with bridges right yeah i also Mm -hmm. felt that felt that they were a bit difficult um mostly especially because bridges aren't in gaia project and you played that first yeah, well, that wasn't even the thing. That sounded interesting to me. The difficult part for me was, yes, I can build bridges and it doesn't require power. It requires workers. However, I started with less money, less workers, 
and no cult track bonuses and everybody else started with more of ev- like more of everything than me and i didn't have a base worker income there's no base income of workers so it was really 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 hard all game for me to get workers so this this one for me was the opposite of gaia project where i had a hard time cycling power though i did kind of have a hard time cycling power cuz i had a hard time expanding but that was because i had a hard time getting workers um it was neat though i by the end i kind of like i kind of rolled into the faction a little bit better but it took me a long time to build up just because it was really difficult for me to get those workers um from the start uh so the engineers i felt were a bit tough but they were also the most interesting of the factions that i or i felt they were the most interesting of the factions that i had pulled out of the bag so i was like sure i'll give it a shot um what do the new factions do so the new factions, uh, they're, there's four. Well, there's one. The ones that we we had on the table were uh, ice maidens, which basically freeze uh, the area. They they basically determine one of their they they pick a, a home terrain type that no one else is using, and essentially they're um, trying to terraform to that one, but they always have to te- terraform from that one to ice as well. So it's a little bit harder to um, just like, you don't really have a home train. You're always going to have to terraform, but their big uh, bonus, which uh, helped my friends out was they start with a, uh, one of those faith tokens. Oh yeah. Uh, So he picked the right one and got the one that lets you have a four power income every round. So he just started with a, wow four power income yeah. the entire game. Yeah. Uh, to the point where at one point during this game, because he had a rough go of Kanban, I I said, but not in any meaning, not in any rude way that I meant it, but he made a really good play. And I'm like, wow, we found a game you're good at. But like, I didn't mean it that way, but it just came across. And luckily he laughed about it and everyone was laughing, but I felt really bad because I didn't mean it that way at all. But he... <laughs> He he very he very much played this game like right the whole time, and I didn't like I didn't mean it that way, but it like he was playing really well, so I was just like, oh, we found a game you're good, at. and I like I didn't think about it, but oh man, well, I don't know if you realize Ben that's even even funnier because that wasn't the first game he'd won that night. Yeah, yeah, that's true, <laughs> and we'll get to that other one, but yeah. that one that one is going to be a bigger discussion, I think, because I had yeah. some thoughts about that one, but. Continuing on Terra Mystica, uh, yeah, he yeah, played the well. Other, uh, the other uh, new faction that we played, I actually played as the Dragon Lords, which turned things into volcanoes. Sweet. But they're interesting in the fact that they don't terraform normally. They basically sacrifice power to terraform things. And then whenever you would get a shovel, you get power back into your bowl. So, Oh, interesting. And I only started with eight power. So it was, it was kind of a constant struggle of, do I terraform stuff or do I get power back and so i don't like basically run out of the ability to get power back mm-hmm. um so yeah it was it was interesting i think one of the things about the new factions that i understand why it's a thing but it does kind of unbalance them is that if you terraform with the new factions you can't unterraform them oh because, that's weird 
and it, well, it's it's basically because the the glacier and the volcano don't exist on everyone else's terraforming right. board. So where where do you go? Where do you terraform from? Essentially, does so, it say anything in the rules that they are explicitly not terraformable? Yes. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I don't know if they, you know, uh, took that into account when trying to balance them, but it is a little odd. Yeah, so this part for me was <clears throat> kind of where, so I know, so first off, I know I had said, it's kind of funny, the progression that I went through, but I know I had said that there's no need for me to play Gaia Project because I've played Clans of Caledonia. And then I played Gaia Project and I was like, there's no need for me to play Terra Mystica. I've played <laughs> Gaia Project. And now I've played Terra Mystica. Um, th- I think this was the point where it kind of, I mean, I think I knew right off the bat because I like the randomized start of Gaia Project a little better personally, where like the map is random and all that stuff. Um, but I think this specific, just using these factions was kind of what tipped me a little bit, uh, like the way that the mechanics worked with them was what tipped me a little bit more toward Gaia Project in that I, I like in Gaia Project that you don't need to like, there's no terraforming step. You just build on a certain type of planet. Um, there's terraforming. Well, there's the Gaia forming, but you're never you're not changing a planet into your own planet. Well, y- yes, I mean, you technically are. You still have to pay not shovels, but what something else, and then you build but it, on it. Unless but we, unless actually... we, unless we played it wrong, you're not changing it, and then you can leave it there. Like there's no terraforming right, yes. step. It's an instant build. Right. action we're in terraforming or terraforming wars i said that while we played too <laughs> uh there's so much terraforming in these games but in terra mystica you can terraform and then leave it right so like these two factions specifically it was a little odd not that it was used that often but with them being able to just kind of like you know before they decided to build on a space they could just you know terraform a space and then block it from anybody else being able to touch it and then come back to it. So yeah, it was that like is a little weird because you do get punished in the base game for doing that. You know, if you just dig next to you and don't do anything yeah. with it, other people can say, Oh, thanks for putting this one step closer to what I need. Now I'll finish it off <laughs> yeah. and mm-hmm. build on it. So yeah. yeah, I think that's definitely just because of the expansion factions that you used. Yeah. So that part was interesting. I don't I think I would I think I prefer the like terraforming is an instant build action with no option to just leave it as a different type of terrain. But I think that really only came in because of the expansion factions. Like if I played again, which I would play again, but if I played again and it was like none of those abilities came into play, then maybe I would see like how you were saying, like I never even thought that if somebody terraformed a space and couldn't build on it, whoa, it might be one step closer to my, like, home terrain. Like, that's a neat mm-hmm. a neat thing that I think, like, works well in in the game world. Um, but I know at the end, Paul, like, up in that top right corner of the map, you plop down two volcanoes. Mm-hmm. Not that I had enough workers to terraform those spaces, but, like, one turn you plop down a volcano tile, didn't build on it, and then the next turn you plop down one right below it, didn't build on it. So I was surrounded by, you know... It was the end of the game, so it didn't make a difference. But like, I couldn't do anything with those spaces at that point. Yeah, it was that that was the one time I did it like a land grab because uh, yeah. 
the other thing that the expansion adds is actually an additional end game scoring uh, that is randomized between, I think, four different options. And it's just so having to be building on the edge. Mm-hmm. So, yep. Paul, have you played Gaia Project or Clans of Caledonia? Uh, I have played Clans of Caledonia. Uh, I enjoy that game as well. I haven't played Gaia Project. I actually saw it at PAX one day, at one one time, and and looked at it and was like, wow, that looks a lot like Terra Mystica, <laughs> just you know, without knowing anything about it. And so I never played it because I was like, well, I own Terra Mystica, so <laughs> I probably don't ever need to look at this game. And then I never, you know, I was never in the same room with someone else who was like, let's play Gaia Project. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Ben, what did you think? I mean, I guess you already touched on this a little bit, but of the three, how would you rank them? Um, I would say, which is funny given how I started with Gaia Project, I would say Clans of Caledonia is the easiest to just like get started and play with. So I would say that that is probably just like, if you're just looking for a game of this type, just jump into that first and see if you like this style of game. Uh, but if I'm like legit ranking them, I would probably put Gaia Project on top just because I think there's more depth to it than clans. Um, then I'd probably put clans in the middle and then Terra Mystica just because I like the changes that Gaia Project brought to what Terra Mystica kind of like laid out as the foundation. Mm-hmm. So I think like if I were going, if someone laid out Gaia Project next to Terra Mystica and was like, which one? would you play? I would pick Gaia Project. So, like, not to say I wouldn't play Terra Mystica again, but if I was given the choice between the two, I would play Gaia Project. Yeah, I mean, I started with... I think I played Clans first, and then I played Terra Mystica later, but I I think Terra Mystica and Gaia Project are really in the same universe, because Gaia Project is, on the box, a Terra Mystica game. You know, it's made by the same people. It is very much built as the sequel to it with some streamlining, some addition, some improvement, whatever. And then Clans is just kind of like the cousin for me because mm-hmm. you see a lot of the same DNA in the game, but the contract fulfillment and the um, resources, you know, turning milk into cheese and all that stuff. So, yeah, I, I think I definitely agree with you ranking-wise. I really, really, really like clans of caledonia i think i've said it before i think it's just like the perfect midweight game you know it's easy to introduce to a lot of people it has fun contract fulfillment it has a really interesting market mechanic on the side with supply and demand so i just think it's a really neat game but then gaia project i think just is a wonderful heavy game and i think they took terra mystica and tried to learn from it and improve it. And I really like the changes from the cult track to the tech tracks on the top left. I think that's really neat. The random setup is also great, like you said. And then also just coming from really enjoying Terra Mystica when I played it, seeing this as Terra Mystica 2.0, it's also just here's 14 new factions to try, which I just think is swell. Yeah, just really quick, the one thing that I wanted to add back in that that I kind of forgot to mention as I was discussing Terra Mystica, one difference between the two, which I actually liked, it was just a very interesting change for me, 
I, I did ask Paul at the beginning, I'm like, oh, how do we like how do we add more power? Because in Gaia Project, it's not a closed loop system. Right. You can add more power to your lowest bowl throughout the game. But in Terra Mystica, aside from Paul's faction that he played, it's a closed loop system. So once you do that, like burn one to move into bowl three, you're not getting that power back. Yeah, you really have to think about that in Terra Mystica. It's yeah. very tight. So that was, I thought that was really cool, but also, you know, really tough to wrap my head around after starting from Gaia Project. It was like, oh, I'm not going to be able to get these back. So I was like, I, like the first turn, I was going to like burn three. And then Paul's like, <laughs> you're going to miss like, those the rest of the game. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're right. I didn't think about that. So that was neat. I actually thought that was kind of neat, the difference there. <clears throat> Paul, you're going to have to try it someday. Yeah, no, I definitely will. It's just, you know, like I said, I already have Termesca. I'm not just going to go out and, you know, buy a guy project. Cause I'm like, Ooh, you they can try before a you buy. Better. Yeah. yeah. No, definitely, I, have to, definitely have to do that one day. Speaking of trying before you buy. Uh, How's I went. <laughs> I went into this. Uh, I went into this game day hoping to not like any game <laughs> enough to purchase it. Uh-oh. I th- so I think I came out not needing to purchase anything, which That's is good. good, but I did really, 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 really like Lost Ruins of Arnak, which you teased before, Jonah, that we were going to talk about. All and right, this is the other game it. that we played. However, big caveat, I, I need to play it again because I need to see if the strategy that won this game is just an all-out, like, kind of broken like mm-hmm. why even play the rest of the game strategy um so, so lost ruins of arnak uh, lost ruins of arnak is like an exploration game so it's kind of like indiana jones the board game i guess uh, in a fantasy like mayan style world um where you are discovering these like dig sites and you're getting resources so it's a worker placement game but you're getting resources and you can use those resources to research things uh you can investigate new dig sites that are like further out so some of them have uh, some of the spaces require you to get there using cards that have boats on them or airplanes or boots to like walk to these dig sites or cars that's the other one Uh, and it also has a little bit of deck building mixed in because throughout the game you can buy new items or you can purchase artifact cards um that will give you you know neat bonuses throughout the game um and also thicken your deck to uh allow you to use more things um it's very pretty on the table i will say that from the get-go which you know draws me in every time so real quick i just wanted to interject with i was i was actually reading the lore about uh some of the um mechanics i guess and the well so there's five it's it's also got resource management it's because there's five different kind of currencies Mm -hmm. um one of them is compasses which is supposed to represent time so since you buy the um was that a stopwatch then i i guess it was supposed to be a stopwatch it looked like a compass but (laughs) yeah yeah essentially the you know the things that you would have to go out and discover like new dig sites cost time as well as the artifacts so it's I, the the um, lore behind it essentially you took time to 
discover a new artifact somewhere, mm. uh, which was interesting. It didn't really come across, I don't think, um, in the game. It was just one of five resources that you had to manage. But yeah, um, but yeah, it, uh, so there there are a few different mechanics that go into this game. Um, but as I said already, it's a very pretty game. Um, it plays kind of similarly to Champions of Midgard, to be honest with you, because once you once you discover a new dig site, like you go out and explore a new dig site, you put a guardian down, which is like a like a monster, like a Mayan monster, um, and if you do not defeat the guardian as an action that round you will gain a fear card which is essentially just polluting your deck uh with negative victory points so each fear card that you have at the end of the game is negative one points and it also just counts as one boot and you need to use boots to use like the base dig sites um so it's kind of neat because you need to manage your resources because you don't know what guardian is going to come out. It's random. So the guardian that comes out might be really difficult to defeat. It might be really easy to defeat. Um, you might need to fly an airplane into it. Like it, you don't know what you don't know what kind of cards you need to defeat these things. So you're you're managing your cards, you're managing your hand, and you're managing your resources. Um, and on the right-hand side of the board, if you're looking at it from the bottom, there's a research track, which I mentioned researching things, where you can move a magnifying glass and then a book up the track. And I guess the thought behind that is you're researching things and then you're writing them down. So you can't move your book until you've moved your magnifying glass up a track. However, this is where I feel like I need to play the game again. Because the person who won the game won the game pretty much only researching. Uh, they really didn't go out and explore the map itself. They had like zero uh, artifact tiles that you get from like going to a new location. Um, because once you get to the top of the track, you're getting 23 points. And then there are tiles that you can purchase using extra resources that can be worth up to 11 points. And this person purchased two 11 point tokens at the end of the game. And it just kind of felt like you didn't need to focus on the rest of the game to win, which is why I would like to play again, because I would like to try and research or see if there's like a better mix of what was going on in the game to win. So, yeah. Um, Paul, I've mentioned this to Ben before, but do you know about the Geek Buddy feature on BoardGameGeek? I do not. So the Geek Buddy feature is something that I use quite often when looking at a new game. You can add users on BoardGameGeek to be your Geek Buddy. And then when you're looking at a game, you can click on Geek Buddy Analysis, and it will show you what all of your Geek Buddies have rated and commented like mm. about this game. So I'm just looking at Lost Ruins of Arnak right now, and I see you know a 9, a 9, an 8, a 6.5, a 6, and a 5.5. So uh, one person that I have as a geek buddy says that it's a solid Euro with a gorgeous production and a good amount of card action ability variety. Um, on the flip side, didn't find it to be standout. So I just want to read this next sentence and see what you guys think since you guys actually played it. It's basically a low interaction resource converting point salad where you can either move up the tracks, purchase more cards, or hit new action spaces, or a combination of the three, 
to acquire points and bonuses. I get why Arnak has its fans. It provides me no compelling reasons to love it or hate it. A fine but forgettable game all around. What do you guys think about that? Well, uh, <clears throat> he's my standing because I, mean, I, I haven't played it. <laughs> I, I will say I don't agree with the uh, part of about it being a forgettable game uh, because while I was thinking about it later and the theme is, could totally have been stripped away and make it a very like just bland here, you know, resource management tech tree. They could probably could have put whatever theme they really wanted on this game. But the one they chose, I think, actually worked really well in the fact that, uh, you know, there are a couple instances where I think Ben alluded to before. There was one Dungeon Guardian that came out that was a giant, like, giant pterodactyl or hawk or something like that. And you needed a plane and a spear to kill it. So, like, we get this, you know, the, the story that came out of it was like, basically, you're riding on the back of an airplane trying to stab this thing with a spear. Like that's, you know, that yeah. is just a story that came out of the game that, you know, was not something I'm going to forget, I'm sure. <laughs> but I, I, I can see where it, it is. It is pretty low interaction. The only interaction we really had was, oh, you took the spot I wanted. Yeah. Or, but that's a function of like every that. worker placement anyway. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I think, I think they used the theme they chose well so that... Mm-hmm it it works with the game yeah it yeah, sounds I, really interesting and the fact that it's on board game arena means i will happily give it a try especially with my basement quarantine <laughs> <laughs> um so a couple of things about the game that i thought were really neat um one of which tra- i think transitions fairly well into a topic that we wanted to discuss because i'm, I'm the segway king now apparently wow, um, way to go yeah, uh, but the first the first one that I thought was neat was actually the way um, rounds work in the game. So like, more like how rounds progress. So at the start of the game, you have this. Um, there's like a staff token, so it looks like a. It's like called the moon staff, I think, and it's this staff with like a crescent moon at the top of it, and you place it between the leftmost when you start the leftmost item card that you can purchase for gold and the only starting artifact card, which is like a powerful um, ability card that you get to use for free right when you purchase it. But every time you want to use it again, you have to pay these like tablets, which are, by the way, the components in this game are really, really cool. So like there are arrowheads, tablets, and they're actual like engraved tablet pieces. Um, these little plastic, like, tablet, uh, plastic tablets, um, and the arrowheads are, like, actual arrowheads. It's very cool. Like, the components are really, really nice. Um, but as the rounds progress, when you move to the next round, and there are five rounds in the game, you will take the two cards that are directly surrounding the moon staff, get rid of them, move the moon staff one step further on the round track, and then instead of replacing items, Everything that is now on the left of the moon staff is an artifact, which is more powerful. So by the time you finish the game, you've gone from having, I think it was five items at the start and one artifact to five artifacts and one item in the last round. So like you gain these more powerful cards that you can purchase 
throughout the game, which I thought was a neat way to do the market and the turn structure or the round structure. Um, so I thought that mechanic was was neat because um, it really, I think it, it ramped up the game as you played, especially because you only have two workers, which was like, felt like a really low amount. And that killed me at the end of the game because I had this whole thing planned where I was going to like discover a new build site. And I was like, oh damn, I need another human like worker person. And I realized that in order to have researched this, I had to use my last person to gain the resources. So it was like, it was a balance of like, you know, what can you do with two worker placement slots to kind of keep your turn going? Um, But then the other... Like, unless, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I like what you're saying about it building up to something. It's always a good feeling in games where, you know, you start slow. And, I mean, in worker placement games, this tends to happen a lot with getting more workers and more actions and doing more stuff. But I like how in this game, even without, right, you only had two workers throughout. Yeah, yep. I like Mm -hmm. how even without getting more workers, you still felt kind of a crescendo throughout the game. Yeah. So that part I thought was neat. And some of the, some of these cards just really good. Like some of these cards were, were really neat. So one way that they combined that I'll talk about, and then I'll talk about the final mechanic that kind of transitions. um, When you, unlike normal deck builders, where when you buy a card, it goes into your discard pile. So the next time you shuffle, you might get the card. When you buy a card in this game, as long as it's not the artifact, when you buy an item, it goes to the bottom of your draw pile. And so you you have a chance, because you're drawing up to five cards each like reset phase, you have the chance to draw that card that you initially, like, that you just bought. Um, now, this kind of bit me at the end of the game, because I built my deck so much, and it's not that easy to thin your deck in this game, that I had too many cards. So like at one point I had a I had a revolver which you just pay a compass and you kill the guardian like instantly. So I bought a revolver but it was at the bottom of like a 10 card deck with like two turns to go so I was never going to see it which is like, you know, it felt bad, but then an artifact card flipped out that was like, "Oh, buy this artifact and you get to take the two bottom item cards from your draw deck. And I'm like, oh, that comboed together perfectly. So like, I was like playing this game where I was like trying to beat everybody to what I needed to buy that card. So I thought that was neat. Um, and I do like the mechanic of putting the the card you just bought at the bottom of your draw deck. Um, because for a deck builder, it was kind of like, do you really want to build your deck that much? Um, mm-hmm. Especially because the person who won this game, I think maybe added like three cards throughout the entire game, maybe four. So like they were getting to see the really good cards constantly. Um, so that was, that was cool. Um, Paul, this was your first time yeah. playing, right? No, this is my first time playing too, actually. Oh yeah. I was going to ask mm-hmm. about player count scaling. So never mind. I don't know how it scales, to be honest. I don't even think we, I mean, there was a um, second side of the board, but it just changed up. I so I do know that there's um, for 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 less players, you actually cover up some of the initial dig sites mm. so that they don't get used, uh, which would make it real interesting because uh, when we played, at least there are always two options to get like to a resource. Yeah. 
with less players, some of those you'd only have one option, which would definitely change up the game somewhat. Yeah, I, w- I would I would try it at lower player counts, but I enjoyed it at four. I think mm-hmm. it was good at four. Um, and then the other thing I know we mentioned the Guardians and defeating the Guardians. Each time you defeat a Guardian, uh, you get to take the Guardian token. They're worth victory points at the end of the game, but they also provide like a one-time benefit um so printed on like the top right of each guardian is like an in-game benefit so one of them might let you you know thin your deck one of them might count as like an airplane one of them was a giant scarab or giant beetle and when you killed it it counted as a car so like you could ride the beetle to your next dig site if you wanted you could just use it as like a one-time uh you know and i think the pterodactyl was an airplane maybe so you could like Mm -hmm ride it as an airplane which is essentially the way the side of the board we played an airplane is essentially like a wild in terms of like going to a location um but that brought in another neat mechanic that like you see these guardians that you might want to go defeat because they give a really cool like one-time bonus to use through the game um and i think that was kind of a topic that paul you had brought up was other games that have one-time use items throughout the game or like one-time yeah, or... use abilities throughout the game. So that was cool. Yeah. I actually, well, I thought that cause it actually, um, Lost Rose Varnock actually has it in two places. Well, one and a half places, let's say. So, you know, as you mentioned, the, the guardians give you like a, a one-time action to do whatever it says. Um, but there's also, a, I guess, a limited action that we all had on our player sheet where, you could, uh, if you go explore a new dig site, you get these idols that are worth points. But then you could, I think there's four, you could yeah. do it up to four times a game, basically trade in more victory points to trade them in for resources that you needed. So it's a, I mean, it wasn't a one time use, but it was a limited use per game at the expense of victory points. Yeah, I I, I use that pretty heavily. Um, yeah, I did at so. the end too, and I realized I, I I'd forgotten about it for most of the game. Yeah, <laughs> it's you know I I was looking through games that have the once per game mechanic in it, and I didn't find many that I've played. And the only uh, Jessica actually thought of oh Jessica thought of one that I don't know if it counts. Um, it probably does. Anyway, uh, Battlestar Galactica has the reveal yourself to be a Cylon, I think is the once per game action in that, right? Yep. That's, I had that on my list. So that's really neat to just surprise, you know, it's the hidden role, basically heavy version of werewolves, but Battlestar Galactica, it's a great game. Uh, I think that's the only once per game in it, right? Is the, the revealing. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And then my two other ones, because I haven't played a lot of Gloomhaven. I know it's in Gloomhaven. But Mm -hmm. Star Realms and deck builders like that, I want to know if you guys think this counts. If you have a card that says, trash this card to do something, is that a once-per-game action? Because instead of it cycling back into your deck, you're... That's basically how it works in Gloomhaven. (laughs) Yeah. Your one-time actions are cards that you have to 
get rid of to to use the ability for. Right. Yeah, Excellent. I would, I would say so. So then Star Realms, and then of course Hero Realms, and I think Hardback has it as well. I don't think Paperback has it. And then Jessica's idea was in The Crew. Have either of you played The Crew? I have not. Yes. So but not super far into it, but yes. So, Paul, do you know what The Crew is? I think you're a uh, trick-taking game. Yeah, That's it's fun. a cooperative yeah. trick-taking game. And there are 50 missions that you can play through. And on each mission, you most of the time can communicate about one card in your hand. So Jessica was saying that this is definitely a once-per-game action because you can only communicate once per round about the card in your hand. Yeah. I mean, I definitely took this took this topic and I had some questions on if it was possible to stretch in certain ways. Like, for example, the one that I was wondering if it could be stretched is like, I don't remember the, the names of all the cards, but in like Food Chain, you know, there's only like the one... I think at certain player counts, like there's only the one brand director that like gets the Zeppelin or something like that. So like, is that, you know, I don't know if that counts because you can, I guess, technically put them out multiple times, maybe. Well, but then the milestones could count on that vein. I did. I did have a couple on my list that were like legit, you know, once per game things in games. Uh, but that was like the one that I was going to ask about when we turned into this topic. So. So I, at least for me, what as far as defining what it is, I always, I always assume it's kind of a, an action that you basically have the choice of when to deploy. Right. That's I, how I, I took it. I feel like it's yeah. kind of like the, you know, the, um, uh, I had a great analogy. Now I don't remember what it was. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like basically, you're if if it's something that happens like once during a game, uh, I I don't know if that counts. Like I was thinking, you know, I don't know if the betrayal in Betrayal at House on the Hill counts. It is a one-time thing that changes the game, but it's kind of just a function of the game, right? Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I have a I had a couple that you know stood out. Like you mentioned, Gloomhaven, a uh, big one that. Uh, I, I is in a game I enjoyed that I haven't played recently was uh, Archmage. Um, it's a area control game where you basically act as wizards and you have kind of a um, you're trying to basically be the most impressive mage uh, and gather followers. But the one game action in that is as you're wandering around the map, you can decide all right, I'm going to make this my home base. And you plop down your wizard tower and you get a whole bunch of different cool actions. And it de- determines like kind of what your focus is for the rest of the game. Uh, you know, you don't want to do that too late because you need to start training wizards, but you also don't want to do it too early because you want to know what your surroundings look like. So, Does everyone know what everyone other everyone else's once per game action is like does everyone have the same once per game yes. action in that yeah so everyone would have a wizard tower to place down and uh determining on when and where they place it down could uh influence how you treat them during the game <laughs> yeah it's something that's really interesting about these once per game actions which would definitely happen in this is 
when you know what everyone's once per game action is, it's just kind of always in the back of your mind for when it could mm -hmm. happen, as well as, you know, when you should deploy it yourself. You know, in a lot of these games that have rounds, like everything we've been talking about, and especially worker placements, you're thinking, should I go here now because someone else is going to do it, or should I go here later? And then when you have this, you know, grand overarching once per game action, you have to take that into account the whole time. And you have to think, when is this really strong event going to happen and how do i prepare for it or react to it so i really like when they're in games yeah um another game i have it on uh for have, have either you played a game called medium yeah at it's patrick's a, mm -hmm. yeah that has uh some interesting uh once per game actions where you have cards to influence what's going on where you know uh it's a Supposedly, what a mind mind meld game where you're trying to think of the same uh, same word. Yeah, and if something's really obvious. A there's a card. There's a card that lets you basically, like, you know, dip in on someone's turn to to guess uh, a word too to get points. And yeah, it's a that was one where I I thought it was a it's a bit more lighthearted uh, way of implementing it. But uh, yeah, Ben, what's up? I I have. <laughs> I have I have just one that I want just want to bring in as well because I know we discussed uh, and this one just came to me, but it definitely influences the game and everyone has the same one, which I think is cool. Uh, but the the bank reserve cards in food chain, it, I don't know if that a hundred percent counts, but it fundamentally changes the second round of the game, and everybody has one opportunity to choose what base price or amount of money they want to add to the bank. Ben, you I keep think... mentioning this game. I should try it out. I know, but no, that I don't know. I was like, when you mentioned like everybody has the same one because only one of my other two, everyone has the same option. The other one was not the same option um, throughout the game. And then when you mentioned that, I was like, oh, well, food chain kind of does have that, uh, so I can bring food chain into the discussion. Anyway. I'm gonna actually bring the Great Zimbabwe back then. Now that you mentioned that, because you have god cards in this game and you can only ever have one and once you choose one you're stuck with it for the rest of the game so there is a lot of thinking to be done with that and which god card you want if you want one at all it's a once per game action and i like it in that as well uh the the very the very very first game that came to mind when this came up was actually and i know we i know jonah you and i played it wrong but it was uh, Imperial Spells and Steam. Us play uh, a game wrong? Never. <laughs> with the uh, with the Surveyor cards, um, so you can have you know the Station Master, the Surveyor, and like the the Engineer. Or, or these little placards that we had twenty of instead of three of. Yeah, where we should have had three, but we had like the full deck. But um, you have that the Surveyors, and the Surveyors, unlike the other two, can only be used once per game. And they're pretty powerful. So I know you had that one that let you build like adjacent to three different cities, which really expanded your network. Um, and the only one that really, you know, goes against that is the one that lets you like take your opponent's surveyor so you can like change your surveyor. But other than that, it's like a one-time use throughout the game. But that was the one where you might have something different than your opponent or opponents have. Um, you don't have the same uh, one-time use item. Um but the, the one that I thought of that does have... Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to tell Paul about 
our brilliant play of this oh. game. Yeah, go uh, for it. <laughs> so in this game, there are three different types of workers or whatever that you can get. I don't know what to call them. Doesn't matter. They're engineers, surveyors, and station masters. Right, and <laughs> in the game setup, you're supposed to have player count plus one tiles in each stack, and then it when even you says it on the insert piece, right? <laughs> when you get one, you rifle through that stack and choose which one you want. Uh, we did not do that. We had the full stacks of like twenty oh. in each pile, and we just chose whichever one we wanted from you know the entire game. So that randomness of which three are going to come out didn't matter for our play. Yeah. So that, that was would, interesting. That would certainly change the dynamic of the game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, that was fun, though. I still enjoyed it. Um, but then the one for me, and this one, this one was interesting. And I know Paul, you and I both had this on our list, I think. But this one was interesting to me because it was a one-time use per game, but it's not per individual game because it's a campaign game. It's literally one-time use, and it's gone. And that is the Founding Stone in Kingdom Death Monster. Um, the Founding Stone is a card that everybody starts with. So basically, like, in Kingdom Death, when you wake up, like, naked and afraid of this giant lion, you grab this, like, chunk of stone off the ground. Um, and at any point throughout the game, you can spend an action to throw the stone from anywhere you are on the board, but you literally... Th- get rid of the card. Like you have no founding stone anymore. Um, but it gives you an automatic hit for a critical wound, which means you don't roll any dice to try and critical hit the location. You definitely hit that location. So at that point, it's like a last ditch desperation chuck of this stone, hoping that you might get like the instant kill critical hit location to pop out of like the hit location deck. But I think that one's neat because it's a campaign game. So each part of the campaign is like an individual game within the game. But you only get to use the Founding Stone like one time the whole time. So I thought that was Mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I guess this shows up in a lot of these types of games. Because I think in the Pandemic Legacy games, you'll have a card that you can use. And once you use it, you rip it up. You you can't get more once per game than that. Look at that. We're expanding it. We're expanding the topic. I like it. What else is on your list, Paul? Uh, I think we've hit everything on my list, unless you also want to count, uh, you know, as I was talking about, uh, Haruins Varnock has that it's, it's like a once per game, but four times per game, uh, thing where you can trade in victory points for, you know, it's a limited number of times. And each time it costs your victory points to trade in stuff. Same thing is uh, on a much simpler game in Ticket to Ride when you're deciding if you want to build your, um, or sorry, Ticket to Ride Europe, actually. Mm. If you want to build your train stations, yep. you know, sacrifice those victory points to be able to get somewhere, essentially. So it's yeah, that's it's, it's basically yeah. you, everyone gets three identical one-time use, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Well, that's the only not, other thing I thought played. of that might might have uh, might have counted. All right, I like the selection. Speaking of selections of games, I'm trying to be a good segue oh, man, like you, Ben. Oh, you taking my crown, uh, Paul? Why don't you tell us all about your topic of choice this week? 
So yeah, uh, topic is uh, picking the right game for the right group. Um, I actually thought about this when I was, you know, having these guys over to play board games. Uh, I was deliberating between whether I should play Terra Mystica or Archmage. And the reason I decided on Terra Mystica was basically because, well, I know that that game would work well in this group, whereas it will not work well in other groups. So let's play that one while I have the opportunity. Smart. Yeah. And I think that's a, a, a big, uh, a big thing to think about, you know, like for instance, you know, if, uh, Jonah, if you were coming over, we wouldn't be busting out Cthulhu Wars. Uh, that's right. Or, or Kanban. Or, or, or Kanban. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, if, uh, and I think we all actually do this, uh, when we're, you know, thinking of games to play with our families, for instance, we're not gonna, you know, we're, we go, all right, what games can my family handle? Essentially? Right. So I, I actually brought up a bag of games for, uh, when the basement dwelling ends and, you know, I was looking at all these games because not only was I picking games for this, I was also picking, you know, which ones I'm putting in boxes and into storage for a few months. And I was thinking, you know, what mm-hmm. could get played and what groups will I be around? So I had to do this exact thought process before. So the games that I brought up here, just quickly, um, I brought up Azul, Wavelength, games that they like, um, Teach You and The Crew, because they both... Jessica's parents is who I mean by they both. Um, they both really like trick-taking games. They've played a lot of Euchre, so I knew that they would like that. Uh, and then I was thinking, you know, how heavy can I go here? So for picking a game for this group, I know that Jessica's mom has a lot of analysis paralysis. So I had to look at my games and think, you know, in which of these games are there maybe too many options on your turn? Because I know that a game could break down if that's a possibility. So it's definitely, you know, sometimes it is definitely player taste, like you were saying. You know, like, I don't want to play Cthulhu games. And sometimes it's also knowing the player as well and just how they Mm -hmm. play games. For instance, you might not want to play a uh, take that game with someone who takes things really personally. Or similarly, you wouldn't want to play a take that game with someone who can be a bit of a jerk. Absolutely. You wouldn't want to play teach you with a teammate that makes terrible decisions. No, I'm kidding. I would. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. I would love I'm to joking. do that. I'm just bringing it back into it because why not? But uh... similarly, I wouldn't play a team game that has Ben and Rich on the same team. <laughs> I would very gladly be on the same team as Rich. It was just Tichu. For me, it's kind of difficult because sometimes the games I own or want to play are like not necessary. So I think for me, it's more that like I like playing new games a lot sometimes. So it's tough Because, you know, I'll know, like at this point, I might know, you know, what types of games you guys like. But then I get this new game and I'm not like 100% sure how it plays, like in depth, like when you're playing it. Like I see the previews, I see what it might be about. But I'm like, you know, how do I find the right group to play a brand new game 
that I've never played before. And, uh, you know, I think one of the, one of the most beneficial things for me when I was trying to like think these things through, especially if I hadn't played games with, you know, the person that was going to be joining, uh, at that point was like back when we were planning a lot of game nights and things like that, like Patrick had that spreadsheet with, you know, games that he, yeah, that had like, you know, people on it and then like games in a list and people would mark off, you know, like what games they would want to play. And I would, and I like used that to kind of get an idea of like the tastes of people's, you know, game preferences. Um, so, you know, we know at this point, Jonah doesn't like Thulu games. Jonah doesn't like Vidal Lacerda games. But I like, like everything so else. Like, <laughs> and I'll play everything else. So like, I know not to bring those games when Jonah's playing or, you know, like I might not love, trick-taking games that require you to like rely on you know hidden information with a teammate like it might not be like my thing i i don't know like you learn that through playing with people so sometimes it can be difficult but that spreadsheet like helped me you know prior to playing with these people kind of getting an idea of what games they liked and who might be like a good match for like these new games i want to play so like i know greg and i both really like new games so like greg is a great game partner for me for all these wild kickstarter games i get in because greg's like oh i bought that game too or like i'm upgrading that game too like we're very similar in that regard so you know you kind of learn that as you play but it's definitely you know a skill to figure out the right games to bring out um and yeah that's why you bring a bunch of games (laughs) yeah well that's i i do sometimes i just bring a backpack full of games sometimes it's a backpack full of one game who knows I, I usually bring a whole bag full of games when I go anywhere, too, oh, I, I'm like, bring, I don't you, know what people are going to be into tonight. I remember and, going to Lone Eagle, and you would bring your, like, plastic tub, and it just had, like, 20 games in it. Uh-huh. It was wild. Because what if but someone yeah, wants to play that one game that you didn't bring? Yeah, it's crazy. You didn't bring up a, a, a good point with the, the new games, and, you, you know, definitely it helps to have people that you know or have a broad uh, broad palette for board gaming because yep. I'm sure we've all had that circumstance where we're, we bust out a new game and then you see a couple turns into a game, someone at the table is really not feeling it and yep. is definitely tuning out. And that sucks because yep. you know, they're not having a good time. And Yep. Well, I'm pretty sure you and I were in the same very first play of Cthulhu Wars way back in the day. Were we? Pretty sure you were in. Were I, I think you were in that one. I might have been. And uh, oh, maybe it wasn't. I know Scott. I think it was me, Scott, Brian. Yeah, and definitely, I it was you. definitely wasn't me. No, it was at your 24-hour game thing. So I no, uh, yeah, I didn't play that one. No. Oh, never mind then. I thought you were <laughs> in that. It's been a lot. It's I been a long just... time since you've had one of those. So it's been a long time since uh, I had to think about it. Yeah, I'm hoping to do that again later That'd be cool. this year. But uh, yeah, 100% on new games, you need to know um, like these people can tolerate like, you know, a learning game. Like mm-hmm. some people might need to play the game right. But if you know like, oh, this person can tolerate a learning game. Okay, well, I can bring a new game over there. Things like that. I think two other really important things to consider for your group is the willingness of people to learn something and the length of the game that people are willing to play. Because for Mm -hmm. a lot of people who don't 
and even people who do play board games, but a lot of people will cap a game at like two hours and they'll say, you know, or even an hour and a half. They'll say more than more than that is way too much time to spend on one board game. And why would you ever do that? So you have to think about, you know, what short, interesting games you have. And then similarly with the teach, you know, if you don't think you can teach a game well, or if you think the person that you're teaching will look away in 30 seconds after you start teaching, then maybe you have to start a 25 second teach. Yes, Ben, you're going to bring up your brother. <laughs> I was actually. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to use my technique when you teach a game. You te- it's, it's what teachers do to kids. You teach the game. As soon as they look away, you stop talking. They'll notice the silence soon enough. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So you bring up a, a, a good point with the length of the game. And actually, that that came into play uh, when I was planning the, the our heavy game day. Like the day before, you know, Nadia goes to me. She's like, well, why didn't you invite me to play in this game? And I told her, I was like, well, because I know you don't like games that are going <laughs> to last longer than two hours. And she goes, oh, yeah, you're right. So, yeah. So yeah, it's it's knowing your audience is definitely a, a good skill to have, and yeah. it's not an easy one to <laughs> not an easy one to you know. Uh, I don't think anyone's mastered it, but yeah, right. That's yeah. why that's why we all have options, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like it. I I don't think unless I was asked specifically to bring a game, a specific game to a game night, I don't think that I would only ever bring one game to a game night like you said you said bring a heavy thinky game and i brought three games like Mm -hmm. you know it uh picking a game is a heavy thinking thinky game sometimes (laughs) yeah it can be so we should talk about games that we have brought that we knew without a shadow of a doubt were the wrong choice but you wanted to play it so badly that you brought it just in case uh, I have two I of those games that, that I brought time. up here. Uh, those are maybe even three, which is shameful. Um, but I brought Bus up here because Bus is really like an hour and 15 minute game if you play it right. The Teach is a 10 minute game and it's not that crazy of a rules mm-hmm. overhead, but probably too heavy. Uh, I brought Tokyo Metro. Who the hell knows why I brought that? That's not getting played. Uh, and then also Public Market. Because I was thinking about Jessica's mom's uh, AP proneness. And after putting it in the bag and driving up here, I was thinking, <laughs> if someone has analysis paralysis, are they going to want to put these different shapes into an icebox? You know, just the polyominoes. Is that really the right move? The answer is no. Yeah, I'm guilty of that as well. Every time I pack up my game uh, game bag, there's always at least one in there where I'm like, I really want to play this game, but it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> Just I, getting I a guess... good workout, bringing it from place to place. Yep. <laughs> I don't, I feel like I'm, I don't really, I can't recall like a specific time that I brought, I mean, I guess maybe if I go to, like when I go to, I've gone to Patrick's and I put Mythic Battles in the trunk and I'm like, this is never, I guess, so that one. Um, just because I don't think there's the space for it, even at Patrick's. But uh, yeah. But what if there is? 
Well, I think the thing is, I know, uh, you know, if I say I have Mythic Battles in the trunk and Scott's there, <laughs> he'll want to play. So, you know, maybe. <laughs> Those games tend to just provide temptation when you're... Uh... When you're all deciding what game to actually play, and you found yourself in the position where everyone's deferred to you, oh boy! Or you're like, yeah. you're like, pick a game, and you're like, hmm. Well, do I do I pick the game that I know everyone will like, or the one I really want to play? Yeah, right. What's it like with you and Miles, Paul? Because I don't pick a game to play with a child that often. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm. I'm lucky in that he's a very intelligent child and uh, it picks up games like that. Honestly, sometimes I would not in- anticipate him picking up. Like for instance, uh, the other day we, ha- I, we had a couple friends over, we were playing a game called Liverpool, which is a card game. Um, or if you've heard about a, a game by uh, the name phase 10. Oh my uh, that's, God. That's the, it's the same game pretty much. Um, uh, but uh, so we were playing that and, you know, Miles was like, I want to play. And so I tried to teach him, all right, here's here's what a set of cards is. Here's what a run of cards. Is. And he picked it up like immediately. So, I mean, that was that was great. But, you know, normally I, I I'll test the waters with a game with him and then just let him go like he is. Like I said, we played 18 games of Arcadia Quest because he liked it. He was like, let's play some more. And I'm like, okay. Went through the three campaigns I had of that. Um, and then, you know, there's there's games. Uh, actually, just yesterday, he asked to play um, a game from the 8-bit box. It's a, that's a, it's a thing called from Ayala Games. They, essentially, their, their idea was you have a centralized group of components and then um, there's little like mini games to play with it that are all kind of based around old uh, like old 8-bit video games. Um, so we played one that's called Pixoid. It's essentially a re- rehash of Pac-Man where one, one player is trying to collect cubes around the map while everyone else is trying to catch them. So he... Uh, yeah, he's he's pretty good with uh, picking up games, and you know I try to challenge him uh, with new mechanics every so often. Sometimes not unsuccessfully, but uh, yeah, he's a uh, he's it's it's fun to play games with him now because he's to the point where we can actually play legitimate games and not playing you know like I mean nothing against Haba games because they're great for. You know, <laughs> They're great for for small kids, but you know, can only bounce uh, rubber eggs around the <laughs> table so long before you want to play an actual actual game. Right? Have you seen just because you mentioned Liverpool and Phase Ten? Have you seen the somewhat famous Tom Basil review of Tom Basil or Basil? Who knows of uh, Phase Ten? I, I have not. But now I have to go watch it. You should really, really go watch it. <laughs> I've seen it's, it. It's remarkable. I was going to ask right when you said Phase Ten if that was the game. <laughs> that is, in fact, the game. I I played the game before I saw that review, so I went into it with some knowledge, which was fun. But uh, yeah, I'll send you a link. It's it's a good time. It's a really Sounds good time. Good. <laughs> Thank you.
that wraps up another episode of Jonah and Ben play board games with friends. Uh, Paul, thank you very much for joining. Uh, Thanks it's great for having me. Uh, and then uh, just one more thing to add, uh, Jonah, you were right. I didn't uh, listen to the episode and hear what you said when I walked away last time while I was editing, but I did hear as I was walking away in my headset, uh, Ben's not going to listen to this. <laughs> and the answer is the answer to that is you're right because I hate my own voice. So I don't listen to anything that I do, <laughs> but I know that you said something. I just don't know what it was. <laughs> so I just wanted to say, I know you said something, but uh <laughs> For all of all of the people listening, and I assume you don't hate my voice like I do, uh, th- thanks for listening again. Uh, this was a, a fun one, and uh, hopefully we can play some more games together soon.